Um, so today, I, uh, the, the title of the talk, Ethics of Entertainment, what this isn't going to be, I'll tell you first. Um, I'm not going to be discussing the ethical practices of the film industry today, uh, where its money comes from, how its workers are treated or paid. In fact, these are very valid avenues of inquiry in both India and China, but it will have to be left to another speaker, I'm afraid. Also, please note, this isn't a talk about aesthetics. We're not talking about whether one film is better to look at or watch than another. Some of these movies, um, you could say, are very bad. I don't, it depends on your opinion. Um, all, uh, yeah, so uh, that, that's the basic premise of what I'm not going to be saying. Also, uh, please note, though I don't often prefer the mode I am talking about, we here meaning sort of we, us in the room, um, as in at Oxford in the West, looking at these films right now. I, I generally, my work is much more Asian-centered than this, so we're talking a little bit more about the West today, um, as well as China and India's film output. Um, so what, we're, what we are talking about is the experience of entertainment, its content, and its relationship to our ethical lives as consumers of entertainment film and as people with a stake in what ethics is, does, and becomes in a globalized world. First of all, we might want to ask, what do we mean by ethics, and what does entertainment have to do with ethics? So, in our daily lives, we can easily observe that some of the things that most obviously cause concern for society as potential instruments of degradation of moral values are media of entertainment, so video games, TV, film, and so forth from outright censorship to high-minded concern for the corruption of youth in the 30s to Mary Whitehouse in the 70s, looking at, at the, the British example in any case. Societies and states have attempted to use entertainment as a tool for teaching ethics as well, more than just overt propaganda. Screen-based media impart values and messages that contribute to our overall frame of reference. Um, but why is it that entertainment media, as opposed to news, independent or factual media, are so important, so primarily suspect in lowering the moral or ethical tone, um, or indeed as a pathway to raising it? I suggest that one way of answering this question is to take a more theoretical perspective by considering what entertainment does and what we do when we consume it. In one word uh, that I think is particularly pertinent here, that sums up what is so dangerous and so useful about entertainment and its relationship with our moral and ethical life, um, and that is diversion. So I want you to just consider that word for a minute. It's a very interesting word. Uh, it has two distinct but related meanings, an enjoyable thing, a, a, a thing which entertains us, or the process of doing so, or secondly, as a diversion from a given path or a task. So if you're driving, you might be put on diversion. And at the same time, you might find a, an, an afternoon's diversion in a film or a, or a piece of theater. Um, and in the second sense, which is the, the driving, taking a, a road and then going on a different path, uh, we can see the essence of the enjoyment that we're talking about as well. We are diverted from our normal life. And within diversion's enjoyment, is thus a letting go and a potential for perversion. As early film theorist Siegfried Krakauer's work suggested way back in the 1930s, we are vulnerable in our diversion or distraction, perhaps, vulnerable to the messages of the media we are consuming. Krakauer rather dismissively put forward the notion that 
the little shop girls in his essay of 1937, who went to the cinema in his day, were being fed unquestioningly a reproduction of the capitalist culture of which he was very suspect. So I've got a quote here that is a very nice quote from uh, an author named Heidi Schlipman about what he and the Fr Frankfurt School said about entertainment. It's a very nice, succinct quote. Under the rule of capital, film production necessarily becomes a mirror of the existing society and serves to maintain <coughs> its structures of domination. It reveals repressed wishes and daydreams, but only in an alienated form, which at the same time reproduces their denial. I'm not suggesting that this is the only way of looking at this, but this is one way of looking at why, uh, why entertainment has this powerful um, seed within it to divert us both in an enjoyment sense, but also in a way that we can be perverted away from our moral values or made to believe other moral values. Um, these shop girls that Krakauer was talking about, they were being taught how to desire, as later theorists would have it, and taught to desire in a particular way and to desire particular things through a medium that short-circuited to the subconscious through visual language. Of course, Krakauer, his contemporaries, and many of his followers in the Frankfurt School rather gloss over the idea that the audience may not simply swallow every story that is told on screen. But actually, that's part of the magic of entertainment, too. In its indirectness, it can be seductive. So we can say that entertainment, especially in a darkened cinema hall or in a long, diverting narrative, provides us with a moment of vulnerability, perhaps, open to ethical corruption or suggestion. And in this sense, Krakauer is right. The culture that we see on screen is a product of the milieu and thus likely to reproduce its most normative moral values. If we just think about the difference between a mainstream and an art or independent film, one of the key differentiating factors is a sense of moral certainty. From Lord of the Rings to Batman, moral complexity leads to critical acclaim, but moral resolution leads to large audiences. And as in the case of Batman and Lord of the Rings, an admixture of the two with an ultimate win for the good means massive success. So for the purposes of this talk, because we've been talking a lot in, about general things, but for the purposes of this talk and the wider ethical questions I'm going to lay out, we also need to consider whether this concept of or understanding of enjoyment in entertainment is even moderately stable across cultures especially in the case of the two film industries we will be looking at in rather more detail, is India and China. So um, we've got to think about what ethics means in Chinese, just briefly, because we're going to be looking at both the reception in the West and the reception in China of mainstream productions of entertainment film. Um, so we've got ethics, we've got lunli, and we've got dao de. is more like morals. And we've got entertainment and enjoyment. There's Yule, which is an entertainment film. And we've got Le in general, which is just joy. Um, and we have, in Hindi, we have must and musti. Musti is something like intoxication. Um, and it's a word that's very, very frequently used in association with things like film, music, but things that we derive diversion from, and uh, pop culture very often. Um, so the combined audience of, of uh, 
Indian and Chinese output dwarfs Hollywood. We all know that, I think. The money, it's another question. But the existing, they exist between this commercial and social structure. So as I said, for the purpose of this talk, we, we're thinking about those issues. Furthermore, we have to think about whether our moral and ethical judgments with regard to entertainment, for example, what we take to be acceptable, corrupting, or useful, remain stable across different genres and origins of film entertainment. And why think about these two countries anyway? I mean, apart from the fact that I study both of them, what, what, what good is there in that? What purpose is there? China and India have certain things in common that make thinking about their popular cultures and the changes in the same in recent years particularly instructive. Um, definitely, we're not saying that they're the same. They're obviously very different. But there are certain elements that make this a particularly interesting and instructive comparison or uh, discussion. There are huge markets with large diasporas that have undergone rapid economic change, especially since the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, both countries suffer from disparity of wealth, which has become more acutely evident as economic success has grown. Their popular film industries, birthed in the theater of social and moral good, and the era of political change have now entered a phase of increasing success at home and abroad. Um, by popular cinema, basically we're talking about those films that exist in the space between state-sponsored or state-endorsed and independent films that have a wide-reaching audience that make money in that respect. Um, so that's a general uh, simple way of talking about it for the, for the purposes of this discussion. Um, in both countries, popular film is sandwiched between the demands of the market and the demands of the state censors, and if not directly the censors, the censure of the public. In China, the space for Mandarin language pop film, the Ula Qian, is contrasted against the Jishen Lü, or main melody film of the state. In India, against state uh, informational films and parallel cinema. Parallel cinema is the term that's generally used for independent film in India um, because it occurs in parallel with uh, things that you would normally think of as popular film, like Bollywood or Kaliwood or Tollywood, and they all exist in different geographical locations. Obviously, Bollywood is the one that people know most about. It has the largest reach, it has the, and it has the largest turnover. Um, and it is the, the, the film industry that's sort of used the most frequently as an instrument of soft power. Excuse me. Um, entertainment films are increasingly glamorous, increasingly promulgating ideals of an Asian future, and increasingly instruments of soft power, as I mentioned. One need only think of Zhang Yimou's opening ceremony for the 2008 Olympic Games or the export of Aishwarya Rai. Furthermore, these culture industries and in fact ethical discourses of both countries have been informed by interaction with colonial and post-colonial discourse, though now inherently I would say they're their own product, they're, they're, they're domestic product, they're native um, in their own way. Both countries also come under sharp criticism on the global stage whether wrongly or rightly, for human rights abuses and social problems. Literacy rates are low in India, especially among women. Individual rights to property and to free speech are infringed in China. Corruption, nepotism, and female infanticide go on in both. These are things that we take to be sort of 
truisms that are trotted out all the time, and there's plenty of evidence about the, the various kinds of social problems in both countries. But these are, this is essentially a large part of the narrative that we get about both countries, the problems, the social problems, the ethical problems. With the exception of kung fu films in China's case, the critical praise of the cinema elite in the West has, until recently, largely been focused on films produced in these two countries that in some way fit into this ethical narrative. They could be called controversial. Banned in China, if you've ever seen it on a DVD cover, which it, it is quite frequently used, um, is actually often perceived in the industry as a desirable strapline for films coming from the PRC. If you want to get your film sold to a wider audience, especially uh, your niche audience in um, your niche audience that consumes uh, foreign language films, having a band in China label on your DVD would not be the worst thing that ever happened to you. Um, so from Chen Kaige to the new documentarists of the fifth or the digital generation, from Satyajit Rai um, and Merchant Ivory to Deepa Mehta, critical acclaim goes to the gritty, the edgy, the band, sometimes the downright orientalist. And in the West, these are the films that make it to limited art house runs, to niche public consumption, in contrast to the films consumed as popular entertainment by the domestic pub public. They are the prize winners. Getting back to our first questions, actually words that surround film, um, entertainment, and enjoyment in the popular context in India and China also contain an element of letting go. And so that subversive potential, <coughs> consequently entertainment, and particularly for the purposes of our discussion today, film, can be considered highly contentious, dangerous in its own linguistic context as well as in the West. This is similar, it's not the same. If they were not, how could we explain the recent crackdown on entertainment content on satellite television in China, uproar and riots over certain film releases in India, debates over internet content. If it wasn't important, then why would anybody care? Um, how in these contexts, the question then becomes, do entertainment films fail or succeed ethically? What does that mean? So um, I want to, go forward with an, a discussion thinking about uh, directional ethics. So what do I mean by that? Parallel to the notion of positive and negative liberty, uh, that is freedom to and freedom from, what I want to sketch is a way of looking at ethical issues uh, surrounding cultural production that are similarly directional. When we consider ethical and moral codes, we can think of them as belonging to two main modes, injunctions to protect, limit, or censor, and thus to save an understood moral et or ethical status quo, or even to undo damage. This, I suggest, is a morality or an ethics from, which is to say, free from some kind of perceived corruption. On the other hand, we have the construction of an active ethical agenda, one that seeks to succeed in furthering the freedoms of people and all the liberal humanist values that we might seek to extend universally. This, for the purposes of our discussion, I present to you as an ethics too. Within it, we can see practical aims to improve the daily lives of human beings around the world, the belief in a universal ethics, whichever way you <coughs> feel about that, and the seeds of propaganda at the same time. 
In order to think about the ethical implications of the entertainment products of the industries in India and China, I want us to think about how they are consumed both in the Western context and in their countries of origin. So firstly, let's briefly draw out some observations on Western consumption of foreign film, particularly a film from countries that are politically overdetermined and as symbols like India and China. Slumdog Millionaire, a film by British director Danny Boyle, and in my opinion, a pale substitute for many works of Bollywood and parallel cinema coming from Indian directors, finally gave A.R. Rahman his first Oscar. He's the, the, if you didn't know, he's the guy who did the score. I'm sure he did. Ang Lee, or Lee Ang, was the first to produce what basically is an entertainment film in Mandarin that was actually lavished with critical praise. And uh, some authors, particularly Xu Shene, have discussed how the critical success abroad affected the industry in China and in the Mandarin-speaking diaspora of that film. That actually it meant that a film that initially was very not very successful, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, when it went to Taiwan, for example, for, uh, did quite poorly. Um, and then after it was receiving critical acclaim in the West, it was actually re-released for a second run um, and did far better. Um, sorry. It's alarming me. Um, so, uh, yes, and Slumdog Millionaire provided both a source of pride and soul-searching contention for the Indian media and public, through, though the score was pretty much universally loved. However, in general, genres of pop cinema in India and China do not even make the cut in the West because they are not well-respected in the Western film context. I'm talking about the genre, not Indian or Chinese film. Um, these usually exist in the realm of the family melodrama of comedy and of historical fiction or drama, often also helped along with some family melodrama thrown in. It is a well understood fact that certain genres of film are much more likely to win Best Picture than others. There's a really, really nice piece of graphic done last year around Oscar time um, that illustrated this very well and that showed that you know certain genres will win, certain genres really hardly ever make it to Best Picture. Um, and you know you have to think about why that is. Why is it that certain kinds of film are perceived of as being good? Surely if they were, if they're put in, they must be thought of as good examples of what they are. But um, melodrama in general has been sort of a much maligned um, genre in the West of late, although it, it was popular in the past. And since uh, the output of India and China often has a family melodrama element to it, the popular film, what I'm saying is that they don't get a look in because of that. So it is a well understood fact that I said, you know, that, that these, these films may not necessarily even make it. The films that do receive critical acclaim, I argue, are those that exist in an ethical frame that not only reiterates the assumptions of the prevailing culture in the West, but also function along the agenda of an ethics too, exposing barbaric practices, social ills, the seamier side of life. Yet this is not expected from European films as a matter of course for them to be praised. Think of the enormously successful Amelie, for example, and even less so for US or UK films 
For every precious, there is a Harry Potter. Not every film need be Bowling for Columbine to be good. In other words, I'm arguing that an ethical judgment foregrounds the artistic acclaim of films coming from countries like India and China. For example, um, the films of Fan Xiaogang, which I'm going to be talking about uh, in a little bit more detail and show you a clip from. Um, Aftershock, which uh, is, is actually done pretty well now, um, it, it's come under criticism for being too, too much in alignment with the state. Um, assembly uh, particularly came under a lot, of, a lot of criticism. It was unfortunate enough to win an award from North Korea. Um, and therefore was kind of kicked to the curb, even though it's quite a good film, in, in my opinion. And it says quite a lot about um, the relationship between military personnel and the state and the state agenda. Um, so uh, just thinking about the ways in which films are received, whether they are put forward, how many, how, what kind of runs they are given, where they appear, um, and how they are discussed in media and newspaper reviews, all this sort of thing. The ethical context, the political and ethical context, tends to end up being a, a foregrounding factor before we even get to the film. It has to be, it's, it's thought of in a different way to the way that a French film might, for example, be thought of, or a German film might, for example, be thought of. So, and these routes of entry to the mainstream Western public being extremely limited for India and Chinese film, Indian and Chinese film, it actually creates a genuine barrier. Um, in some senses, as pre prejudicial as any censor, and it's worth thinking about that, because very often we think about, um, you know, a Western uh, freedom or a, a rather an ethics, two, as I was talking about something with an ethical agenda, as being liberal and liberating, but we really should think about that again. Does it actually mean that you get stuck and you can't see certain things? You actually end up censuring yourself. Just because it's under the rubric of liberal values doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't limiting. Um, so apart from the cinemas in the diaspora communities and the circulation of satellite TV within those communities, illegal networks that operate in the same, the entertainment films don't really make it into the, haven't up until now in any case, or are, are just beginning to make it into the Western consciousness. This is beginning to change. So below, I'm going to go into a few, or later, I'm going to go into a few films specifically that push at these barriers. But first, I just want to briefly consider the ethical dimension in the domestic reception of entertainment films of India and China. So this is more about the freedom from. Um, as Raminder Kaur points out in her book, Censorship in South Asia, official and unofficial censorship in India takes many forms, sometimes complicit with each other. Criteria of vulgarity and the necessity to avoid harming religious sentiment are suitably vague to allow excesses at times and at times avoid censorship altogether. She highlights the process by which filmmakers and actors vie to achieve status as moral and ethical responsible through layers of self-censorship as a necessity when dealing with what is still perceived of as a mass, the vast majority of the population who are, quote, backward and in need of upliftment or improvement. When asked about the power of cinema, noted filmmaker Vivek Vaswani said, for example, it is too powerful a medium to really ignore the social implications 
of making the kind of films that you should. I have no doubts, not just here in the world, that a film like Natural Born Killers will have the kind of impact that it shouldn't, but it will because it is such a powerful medium. That doesn't mean that all of us should make Raju Bangaya gentlemen all our lives. That's a very popular kind of uh, fluffy piece of entertainment cinema. Um, but because we're infiltrating to even the small towns, therefore we have to have a social conscience, certain responsibility, not of what we are showing, but what we should have a social, uh, but in terms of what we are not showing. The power of not showing is in your hand. So you have to realize what you don't have to show. So that's an example. I mean, he, this is a quote from a respected director saying that, the, illustrating this idea of holding back rather than putting as a moral gesture, as an ethical gesture, rather than having an ethical agenda to do a certain thing. This, albeit rather patronizing attitude, is reflective not only of generalized discourse of protecting the public from quote unquote negative influence in both India and China, but also increasingly of the desire to protect quote unquote Asian values. It is bound up with both a wider and increasingly prevalent discourse of cultural nationalism, and in some cases with the state. For the sake of economy, since our time is limited, let's now take just two controversial or topical ethical social issues that have appeared in recent films to think about the merits of films that cater to the ethics to and the ethics from in those constructions. So I'll be juxtaposing films that are normally understood to be popular with ones that are normally understood to be independent um, or uh, outside of that popular realm. So the first, the first area that I wanna discuss, um, which you might have seen on the, the synopsis of what we're gonna be talking about today, is uh, homosexuality in India. So this is a controversial issue, um, obviously. And up there you'll see section 377. Section 377 was the law um, that until 2009 uh, made it the case that it was officially illegal to be a homosexual in India. Um, that is now repealed, happily. Um, so what I wanna do here is talk about these two films. Dostana and Fire. Um, so Dostana is a popular, it's a mainstream film, it came out in 2008. And Fire is really uh, an example of parallel cinema uh, by a director who some of you may have heard of named Deepa Mehta, who uh, is a Canadian uh, Indian. Um, I think she's an NRI actually. And uh, you'll see that on the stats there, uh, you've got some uh, interesting things. The budget for Dostana was uh, 5.59 million. Its takings were um, 17.9 million, so it did quite well. Um, and the takings for an Indian film in general, a Bollywood film or Hindi film, so one of the ones that gets a bit more uh, spread um, to the diaspora, they actually uh, are still not that great. They're improving year by year but they're not as great as the ones of Hollywood, for example. And it had a very successful soundtrack, including the surprise dance floor hit, Madalala. Madalala actually is about um, your, your son uh, riding in the bridal palanquin, um, which I will explain why there, that's in there in a minute. 
So let me start with that, and then I'll get on to Fire and the plot of Fire. So uh, there are several films in parallel cinema that deal with the contentious issue of homosexuality in India, but in Hindi films, the recent success of the 2008 film Dostana brought a great deal of media attention to issues surrounding homosexuality. The film is pretty star-studded. It features two heroes of the moment, Abhishek Bachchan and John Abraham. It also features Bobby Diol and Kiran Kerr in the crucial role of Bachchan's mother. Um, and you'll see her, I'm gonna show you a clip of her being very uh, filmy, being very, very much in the realm of the Bollywood Hindi film um, and being a mother in that. The plot is pretty simple. It, Friends Samir and Kunal fall in love within an apartment in the middle of Miami. They, they adore this apartment. They've both been kicked out. And uh, finding that as men, they would not be accepted as roommates to a woman that lives there. They decide to fake a gay relationship. Um, initially, they want the apartment. That's really what it's all about. Then they find out that their roommate is the gorgeous Priyanka Chopra, and they initially struggle to keep their cover then fostering a profound friendship, which is the dostana of the title dostana, means friendship. The plot thickens when they find that they can get ridiculously quick residency in the US if they apply as a same-sex couple, which they do. And in the end, their secret is revealed, and Chopra actually ends up with her new boss as uh, a partner, despite their best efforts to sabotage everything. Um, the film finishes with a passionate 20-second kiss between Abraham and Bachchan, albeit as a dare, and everyone living happily ever after. The film's critics point out that it's stereotypes, it's got, you know, simpering queens, dance-loving gays, it's very campy. Its advocates point out its mainstream appeal, star-pulling power, it's managing to squeak past the censors with a family-friendly rating, which means that your entire family can go and see this movie together. Um, despite the fact that there's quite a lot of swearing in it, actually. Um, and uh, it, it, it has this campiness, which when looked upon favorably, reveals, as one gay activist put it, two films layered on top of each other, one for the gay community and one for everyone else. The film showed the surprising power of the pink rupee and actually managed to show gay people in positions of authority, working as chief editors, naturalization officers, and even soldiers. It was quite a funny scene uh, where uh, a US soldier, even before the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, is, uh, or just about the time of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, um, is uh, reminiscing over his romance with his boyfriend while he's on home at home on shore leave in Miami, and he runs into this fake couple. Um, so moving on to, so that, that's the case for and against the, whether this movie does anything for the debate about homosexuality in India. And then we have Fire, which was made quite a lot earlier, but it's still a very controversial film. It's still a very topical film. It's still a very talked about film. Uh, Deepa Mehta's Fire is part of her Elements trilogy. It's a completely different film. It's, it's a parallel piece of parallel cinema. But uh, one of the things about parallel cinema that you probably should know, if you don't already, is that uh, many of the same actors uh, appear in both types of film, in independent films and in uh, mainstream or Bollywood entertainment films. So that's an interesting point. Um, 
<coughs> it was one of the most controversial films about gay and lesbian issues ever. The plot follows Radha and Sita, whose name, incidentally, the only thing that the censors changed about the film before it was released was the name of Sita, because um, Radha and Sita are, are uh, r religious figures. They're associated with Krishna and Ram, very, very central stories of uh, Hinduism. And so it was thought that using the name Radha and Sita, particularly Sita, who is the consort of Ram, would be conceived of as being very offensive. So it was cut out and her name was changed to Nita. Um, so these two wives in a joint family, their growing romantic relationship and Radha and Sita have both been neglected is the plot. Basically, uh, Sita marries into the family. There's already um, a married couple there and uh, they start to be interested in each other rather than in their husbands um, because Radha's husband is enthralled by a guru um, and is unable to give her attention. In fact, he's decided that he would rather be celibate since they cannot um, have children. Um, and Sita is just married into the family, marrying um, uh, the brother in the family, the younger brother in the family, who uh, is actually involved with another woman and un really unwilling to, to give Sita any attention. So, um, they seek out these other choices, and that's the quote that's used for love and find each other. In the end, having caused a showdown in which Radha's husband sets her on fire, they are reunited to face an unknown future. The film is superficially a lesbian film, including some scenes of same-sex eroticism, but in that neither woman identifies as gay, if it, it is most frequently understood within a patriarchal logic. They become lovers because of this, the dysfunction of the family, because of their neglect by their husbands. While fire has become a touchstone in independent Indian film, um, partially because of the fact that it was rioted against, it was shut down um, in Delhi by uh, Shiv Sena, uh, which is a political party. And um, it, it, was, it was sent back to the censors as a consequence. While Fire has become a touchstone in independent Indian film and an emblematic film about gay issues in India, Dostana has been largely dismissed in the West. While in India, Fire, after escaping the censors, as I said, the first time around, you know, it basically imploded. It was destroyed. Who saw it? Um, so the question is, which is a more ethically valid film for, the, for the, you know, what we're talking about, the issue of uh, homosexual rights, gay rights, uh, and for advancing the discussion of um, issues about homosexual in, in, homosexuality in India is a more controversial film that gets seen outside of India more than within India, but pushes the envelope more. Is that a more ethically valid film? What does it do? Or is Dostana, which is a film that a lot of people have seen, but maybe doesn't push the envelope very much, is that a more ethically valid film for this particular argument? What, what is the net effect? Um, so it's worth mentioning, by the way, that gay characters are also sneaking into popular film in China, uh, which would have been unthinkable in the past. The very popular Fei Chang Wu Rao, if anybody's seen that, um, actually has a, 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 a gay character cameoing and having a very serious discussion about how he started uh, being attracted to men. Um, so moving on to uh, our second issue, and I'll be quick. Um, 
we're talking about memory work as civil engagement in China, in Chinese uh, contemporary uh, popular cinema. So it's quite a different discussion. I'm just picking two topics at random, they're not related, um, but they both happen to have films that have come out recently, so it's relevant for us for our discussion. So the power of a non-state actor to affect their future, of the role of an individual and community group in contemporary China is a, it's an interesting and contentious and growing issue. Aftershock is a film by Feng Xiaogang. It's in Chinese, the, the title is Tang Shan Da Di Jian. Um, Tang Shan Da Di Jian is actually a film about the earthquakes in Tang Shan in 1976, and then it's bookended by the earthquake in Sichuan um, in 2008. 1428 is a documentary film made by Du Haibin uh, that's about uh, the Sichuan earthquake as well. And I chose them because they're thematically similar um, and that also they talk about civil engagement, activity um, and actively being involved in rebuilding your life uh, when the state is, is not present. Um, and also um, the, the job of memory work, just the, the general idea that you have to piece together your own memory outside of the official memory discourse. Because um, up until fairly recently, trauma, uh, certain kinds of trauma within Chinese history have, have been subject to erasure, um, thinking particularly about the Nanjing Massacre, for example, that um, only recently have a whole spate of films. And I'm talking about recently would be like 20 years. In the last 20 years, a spate of films have talked about Nanjing Massacre in more detail. Um, pictures about the Nan of the Nanjing Massacre are, uh, are in textbooks now. It's very much been re-embraced, but up until that point, the economic uh, importance of the relationship between Japan and China meant that there was a reluctance to talk about that particular issue in the public sphere. Um, so this project of, of creating an individual memory is distinctly an individual, it's a civil process, it's not a state process. And both of these films talk about that issue and that element of civil society in quite a lot of detail. Um, so as you can see, Aftershock was released in 2010. Its director is uh, Feng Xiaogong, and its budget was pretty big, 25 million, and its takings were 100 million. Um, it's, it was the official submission to the Academy Awards, but it was not put forward. Uh, 1428, by, by contrast, is a teeny, teeny, tiny film. It was probably made with I don't know, like definitely less than $50,000, um, although not including the distribution and whatnot. But um, it was a winner of the Venice Film Festival uh, for documentary, and it was also included in the LA Film Festival. So it, it, it created a lot of buzz and it got a lot of acclaim. Um, so the recent films, uh, we're talking, I, I wanna talk a little bit about Feng Xiaogang who directed Aftershock. He's a director who is increasingly acknowledged as a master of the entertainment genre. Having sustained a long time artistic relationship with the at times controversial author Wang Shuo, Feng has been on both sides of the censor's favor at various times in his career, as many filmmakers have. Um, but through recent films, he has not only succeeded in bringing the New Year's film to the mainland audience from Hong Kong as a very commercially successful venture, but has, I argue, made substantial contributions to discussions about consumerism, 
modernity and alienation, and Asianness in contemporary China through his entertainment film. Nevertheless, the majority of his work has been met with dismissal in Western media. One film that begins to pick away at this is Aftershock, which tells the story of a family torn apart by the Tangshan earthquake of 1976. Um, the mother has to make a decision after the, the devastating earthquake to save either her son or her daughter. And she chooses to save her son. So again, there's an ethical dilemma in the film, and it's a very pertinent ethical dilemma. The daughter lives, and but rejects her family, does not seek out her family. And it, in the end, they're all reu reunited. So it's a film about trauma, earthquakes, the, the vast, set against the vastness of uh, everything from the 19 se from 1976 to 2008, and all the economic change that's happened in that period, but at the same time, it's a little family drama in its own way, very dramatic, very melodramatic. 1428 is actually 1428, incidentally, is the time of the earthquake in 2008. That's why it's called 1428. Um, instead of instead of taking that tack, because it's a documentary, partially. Um, it goes ahead and looks at what each person, what individuals are doing in the aftermath of the earthquake, what's happened to them, what's happened to their lives, how they are addressing these problems. And both films, although they, they do show the activities of the state, they also focus on what individuals are doing in that period to help themselves and to, to, to put themselves forward. So I guess that's it, because the question is, again, which of these films does more? Does a film that 1428 can't even really be seen in China. You can, you can see it because you can get it. You can get it illegally if you want to. And it has been seen, um, especially after having won awards. But it's not easily obtainable. Aftershock uh, had people crying in the aisles. Is that message about civil society, is that something that um, is more usefully transferred through a film like Aftershock that talks about other things as well and puts it in a frame that's acceptable for the state to, uh, to endorse? Or is it better to do something where you're not paying any attention to whether the film will be shown to 10 people in a room or uh, millions, but you want to make an ethical point about your situation or the situation that you find yourself in? So I want to show you a couple of clips, and then we'll discuss. Sorry about this. So uh, firstly, for the comedy value, um, I will show you. This is from Dostana. Um, and this is, I, I had to take clips because it's on an Indian uh, CD, DVD. And this one is uh, Chinese region. So the quality's not quite as good because I had to use a software to do it. Um, but this, this scene shows the, the most important, in a way, the most important part of the film. Uh, the mother of um, Samir, which is Abhishek Bachchan's character, is having been uh, persuaded that his, her, her son's gay relationship is okay and is, is really for the best, is really for uh, the best of his happiness, greets her son's presumptive partner um, in the manner of his, as if she, he was her daughter-in-law, um, using film, you know, very, very uh, traditional kind of campy uh, Hindi film 
props and, and, and references to other films. The music comes from another film called Kabi Hushi Kabi Hum, um, and it's very melodramatic and very comic. And the idea of a mother, a very traditional Indian mother, accepting this kind of relationship is one of the key points in this film uh, that makes it quite effective, in my opinion. there you have it. Lovely, lovely uh, comedic performance from Kiran Kher. So, and then I'll show you a very, very brief uh, thing from the end of the movie, um, which I don't know why this is behaving like this. see the famous kiss. There you go. So that was very brief, but I think you get the idea. Um, and I'm just going to also show you a brief clip from Aftershock from Tangshan uh, Dadijian. Hold on, sorry. I don't know why 
it's doing that. Sorry. I just do it like this. Sorry, guys. Oh, so sorry to fill you in because this, this is a long movie and it has a lot of plot. So uh, this is the office of the brother who was uh, saved and he's working as a, a sort of travel agent um, in Hangzhou. And um, he, he, you'll see what happens, but this is about the memory coming back of the earthquakes for both him and his estranged sister and how they uh, react to it and how they want to get involved with uh, the rescue efforts. <laughs> It's also a commercial for China Life. So then this is his estranged uh, sister in Vancouver with her foreign husband who is substantially older than her um, and you get to enjoy some really really cardboard acting by a very very bad Caucasian actor. There always seems to be one. Hey, you're back so early. Sorry, I can't help it. I think he's hilarious. Did anything happen to Tianjin? No. I called her. She's coming home now. Honey, let's go inside. The force of the earthquake was so powerful that many homes didn't simply collapse. They were destroyed, smashed into pieces. And in many cases, beneath the pile of wood and brick are the people who once lived here. The focus, their officials, is not on finding the dead, on trying to save the living. Honey, are you okay? 
it's okay. How'd you go help them? I understand. Whatever you want. And then, you know, she goes back and does her thing. So, that's it. I, w I would love to have some discussion now. So, I hope I you enjoy that. that's that's kind of the point is that you have some um, what I was talking about like that was what I would I would in the context of my talk I would talk about an an, an ethical exemption where basically you're you're saying that you're removing a thing in order to make the film ethical but actually I mean where if you're taking the example of obscenity right, right. who decides what obscenity is I mean that's one of the key problems that we face in this country and other countries when it comes to pornography what does pornography mean so yeah. when I'm talking about um, what I'm, what I, what I'm uh, chiefly concerned with when I'm looking at the Western reception of films, uh, uh, rather the Western reception of films from China and India is precisely the point that um, they're foregrounded in this kind of uh, ethical judgment, moral judgment on whether the film, how the film fits into a political and a moral context in that society. Right. So I'm looking at the ethical dimension of the discourse about the film. Not an absolutist, or, you know, is this film ethical in some bigger sense. Okay. So I'm, I'm saying something about whether um, this furthers ethical discourse within the, within the country or whether it's understood to be an ethical film when it's received. You were doing another thing as well. Was it a, was it, I, I grasp that you were doing that, but at certain points you seem to be this one is reaching out to this many millions of people um, you know is that more ethical? well that's open for discussion I mean th okay. that's the thing is that yeah so, so the problem is there just seems to be two different ways of thinking about ethics that's what I, I presented that there's two different ways of, of understanding it and what I'm trying to suggest is that for example I'll give you a concrete example um, film I'm sorry I'm still getting over my cold um, the film Jijie uh, Hao, which is um, a, uh, it's it's called Assembly in English. It's by Feng Xiaogang. Uh, like I said, it was it was essentially dismissed on the basis of the fact that it won an award in North Korea, 
and that it was nominally a piece of propaganda because it, it was talking about um, uh, the, the wars that the CCP was involved with and portraying, that, uh, portraying their activity as being positive. And of course, it's going to portray um, the, the side of the country of origin as being positive, not necessarily without uh, question. It does have, have its moments of moral ambiguity. But um, the, the first point of, of contention, the first point of dismissal within the Western media about that film was not, this is an artistically poor film. The first bone of contention was this film reinforces the state, is ethically suspect in essence because of that. I think that there's a, there's a, a moral, um, I'm trying to suggest that there's a, a moral judgment that goes on uh, in the process of um, bringing entertainment and, and cultural products in from countries that are part of a larger ethical discourse uh, globally. Does that make any sense? Um, I, I just want to push you a bit on uh, whether or not you think that this is an acceptable moral judgment. I mean, you might just sort of think, yeah, well, that's a, that's a, that's a good thing that uh, we're dismissing all these. Uh, but that's a question. I, I'm trying to push you to answer the question. Well, I, I think that, um, I think that it's it's very difficult. Um, I mean, my opinion on which things, because essentially what we're talking about is whether the film does good or bad. I mean, because you, you were saying that that's about, that, that the morality or the ethics of, of entertainment would be about ex ex exerting or exempting things from it or extracting things from it. But in this case, it's ethics that's about the overall effect and whether it, it, what is included, not what's exempted. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about an ethics to, an ethics to have an ethical agenda. Um, so whether you think that, you know, whether you think that that ethical agenda should be decided by whom, that's the question. Um, and if you accept that, you know, there's a, 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 a happy uh, medium to be found among sort of liberal humanist ideals, you know, or not. It's a, it really, I mean, you're asking me to make a judgment about it. I think that both kinds of films are necessary, um, rather in kind of mirror of um, what what uh, you know feminist theorists have said about the agenda of feminism, that you need both uh, the sort of practical elements, the day to day, as well as the radical outside, because otherwise things don't really move forward, and that you need to have this contrast between the the outrageous, the radical, the the thing that will comes out from nowhere, as well as the kind of let's think about equal pay and you know this sort of thing. So what I'm saying is that I think that both films serve a purpose. Um, but if you, I think it's ridiculous when people talk about when a filmmaker would talk about or a reviewer would talk about, and I have I can I can give you examples if you like, but um, we talk about a film that's. Uh, reaching a tiny minority of an audience as being an, a, a beacon, you know, for, for change. How, how can it be a beacon for change in the domestic context when it's not viewed in the domestic context? We like to, th I think that people like to think that because it's being viewed at, a, at Venice, that that means that it has an effect. I don't know. 
I'm not sure. I think that that's something that we have to think about a little bit more carefully. So that's that's my that's my take on it in any case. Thank you. Um, thank you.